Philippians chapter 4 this morning. We had to look at the penultimate time in this series in Philippians. Uh, we'll finish here in two weeks. Next week, uh, Sanctity of Human Life Sunday. And uh, we'll look at the topic of abortion uh, biblically, historically, and pastorally. And then finish our series, Lord willing, uh, in Philippians. We'll finish it the last Sunday in January. And then begin looking at Exodus in February. Philippians chapter 4, if you would stand with me in the honor of reading God's word this morning. Philippians chapter 4 and beginning in verse 10. We'll read down to verse 14. Philippians chapter 4. Girls eat potato chips. Do you remember that? Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. Girls eat potato chips. Philippians 4 verse 10. Some of you, that's all you're going to come away with today. I just know it. Verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly, that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. This is the word of the Lord for us this morning. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. Sometimes ignorance is indeed bliss. When Sarah and I were first married in 2005, we were living in Virginia Beach, Virginia. I was going to seminary. She was working two pretty much full-time jobs, teaching piano, and we had no kids, and we were largely content with our 1998 Toyota Corolla and 2004 Ford Taurus. No frills, just getting down to business. I grew up in Indiana where everything is flat, and there's no need for any kind of all-wheel drive type vehicle at all. I didn't really know what Subaru was. Uh, no mountain passes, no snow tires, no off-roading meant bliss for the ignorant. However, when we moved to the Pacific Northwest after graduation in 2009, I remember being stuck. And I wasn't stuck, but I was continuing just to drive, but there was cars stuck in a snowstorm outside of Portland. They just left their cars on the highway. As I-5, and I wondered, who's going to come back and get them? But they couldn't make it up the hill in the icing conditions. So in a few years, when we had two little boys and we were looking for another car, we are now looking for a car with all-wheel drive. Because we had learned you might need uh, all-wheel drive in this area with mountain passes and such. And we needed more space. We had more passengers. And now we needed all-wheel drive. It begins to make the search for a car not so simple, does it? Well, I have learned, and so now there are more specifics that I need in a car. In our search, we really loved the look of the old Volvo V70 cross-country. It had the third row, all-wheel drive. It was perfect for our growing family. Volvos were boxy, and Volvos were safe. And I wanted my family safe. That was another thing. I've got kids now. I can't think of just myself. 
What is it that we need for as a family? A growing family means learning more of what the options are out there. That my need for a vehicle, the needs that I had, I know some of you have a more strict definition of needs, but we're talking need here for a car. The list was growing and it's getting more and more expensive. Then, and I'll never forget it, when we were buying this Volvo, wagon, we found out that it had a feature that to us had never been introduced in a car before, that at the time we were ignorant of, but now has become a need. Now we cannot buy a car without this feature. This feature does not help the car to drive better. It doesn't help it to brake any quicker. It's not a safety feature really of any kind. But it's a need, and especially these last few days, it's one that I'm using more than I use normally. Seat warmers. <laughs> I know, I know. Before we had them, we were content, completely content with the old cloth seats on the Toyota Corolla. We were content with what we had, not knowing what glories existed <laughs> in a late model Volvo. Volvo was a little ahead of their time. The heated seats has elevated from a luxury item to a basic necessity in a car. Now, don't get me wrong. Before we had heated seats, I still struggled to be content with my cars, for sure. Okay? Just like any of us, maybe. We struggle with things uh, like that. But now, my list of what it takes for me to be content seems much longer. This is where we begin to see ourselves in Philippians chapter 4, right? If we remember, Paul is in prison as he's writing to the church in Philippi. Uh, he's been in prison in Rome, and the church sent Epaphroditus to him with a gift. They sent Epaphroditus to deliver news, no doubt, of how the church was doing, but also with him a gift to help meet Paul's needs. Paul didn't have a need for heated seats, though he probably didn't know what he was missing. But in prison in the first century, he had need for Food, water, clothing, the basic necessities of life. Back in the first century, you're not getting three square meals and free Wi-Fi in Roman prisons. The Roman prison would require your family and friends to care for you. So the church hears Paul at some point has a need or they just expect it. And months before Epaphroditus gets there, the church gathers up a gift and sends it by means of Epaphroditus. It no doubt takes him quite a while to make the journey. And we know from earlier in Philippians that Epaphroditus gets sick to the point of death on his way to see Paul and to deliver this gift to him. But as the church sends a gift to Paul to support him, to care for him, to meet a real need for him, Paul seeks to do two things here as he moves sort of into a more biographical or autobiographical section as he's ending the letter. He does two things here. One, he wants to let the church know how much it meant to him that they cared for him. And he wants to know, wants them to know that Gift or not, his trust is in the Lord. Paul is full of joy at the gift that was sent to him. But he loves being content with all that Christ has given to him and is for him even more. Now, how do you get to a place like that? 
Let's look at the text together. Two, two main things this morning that we just mentioned. But number one, if you're keeping notes, the Philippians brought joy to Paul by expressing concern for him and sending him a gift. We can't overlook this. Because what's sandwiched in the middle of the section where uh, most people will go for this passage when they look at the verse, I can do all things through Christ. That's on the posters. That's on the stickers. That's the motivational wording on the images, right? I can do all things through him who strengthens me. But what's not there is what stands as the bread on the outside of the sandwich. And that is, you church cared for me. And it genuinely encouraged and blessed me. And notice as we read of verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that at now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned but had no opportunity. You revived a concern for me. You sent this gift to me and I rejoice greatly in the Lord. And then verse 14, which often gets coupled with the next section that follows. In the Greek New Testament, it's connected to the verses that we're looking at this morning, verses 10 through 13. And so we'll use it as sort of a a launching pad here in this text, but then also look at it when we look in two weeks, the last section of this chapter. But verse 14, he says it again. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. I rejoice greatly in the Lord because you did this. It was really kind of you to share in my trouble to meet my need in the middle of affliction. You know how that feels? Someone coming and meeting a need for you in the middle of a difficulty. Maybe it's just a word spoken at just the right time. It's exactly what you needed to hear. It's a note. It's an encouragement. It's a meal. It's kindness. It's warmth. A question. How are you? How are you really? How can I pray for you? You know what it's like to have someone express concern for you, someone to send you a gift, and Paul lets the church know, I don't want to bypass this. You are dearly beloved believers to me. Thank you. It encouraged me greatly that you did this, that you sent this gift to meet my need in the midst of my trouble. They met a genuine need for him. And he is thankful, genuinely thankful for the care that they have shown to him. The Philippians had enough that they were able to meet a need of someone else. Someone who's in a dire circumstance in prison, they said, we have something we can share with someone else. And so they took, whether it comes from excess, maybe they had a lot extra and maybe they didn't. Maybe it was sacrificial for them to raise this amount, to send Epaphroditus all that way. All of the food and energy and time and money that it would be for him to, to go and make that journey. But it was worth it. It was worth it if for nothing else to deliver a gift to encourage one other person. That's quite the sacrifice that a church would make to say, hey, we see your need and we want to meet it. And whether it came out of a church that is well-funded and has lots of extra or it came as a sacrificial offering, the church met the need of someone else. J. Mott, you're in his commentary on Philippians, says, One Christian has enough because another Christian is generous. 
Or since every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, the Lord uses generous Christians to help needy Christians. And Paul was needy, and the church helped meet his need. The beauty is we don't know exactly what, the, what that need being met looked like. We don't know what the gift was. Oh, we can't see inside of the care package and be able to assess a, a number, a value to it, and be like, man, they really hooked him up, didn't they? We don't know that. But what we do know is what Paul tells us. He had a need, and the church met it. And for that, he is genuinely thankful. They expressed concern for him, not just merely in a letter. Hey, we, we heard you have a need, brother. The Lord be with you, and we pray that he will provide. We're praying for you. Well, there's in a sense where that would have been helpful and encouraging. You, you get word, hey, somebody's praying, but they sent the gift anyway. They, prayed, they were concerned for him in word and deed. Now, James mentions this in James chapter 2, verses 15 and seven, through 17. He says, If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, Go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving, giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. You might be the means of God helping someone else by your giving to them when you are prompted to help them. You might be by the way that your words or your encouragement or your letter or, or your gift or your financial help to someone who needs that, you might be the answer to prayer that you were praying for with them that God would bring or that others were praying and you were unaware. You just did as you were prompted and God used that to greatly encourage them. Maybe you hear of a need through a friend. Maybe it's a family member who has a need. Maybe the person themselves shares, in, shares it with you as part of a life group or over coffee. And while we know we can't give to everyone who has needs, we don't hear of everyone who has needs. We hear of that need. And we feel prompted by God to help with that need. We hear of someone's heart that is breaking, and we say, I want to care for them. I should say something. I should write something. I should let them know that, that we're concerned. We should send something that might be of encouragement to them. Lots of excuses can crop up in your mind. So this just happened when we were talking here briefly about Nellie as we prayed for her. Grateful she's out of the hospital and is home with her family. But this came up. Oh, I don't think we should send anything. Maybe by the time it gets to the hospital, she'll be gone and home. There's lots of excuses, right? Lots of things that we can all of a sudden talk ourselves out of. But the question is, are we willing to give when, where, how much the Lord moves us to do? Or are our fingers clenched so tightly around possessions or time or money or our words do we cling so strictly to a budget that won't allow you to give even? Surely, the Holy Spirit knows Dave Ramsey and approves of the envelope system. And he knows this is okay. I can be stingy because, doggone it, i got to keep the money in the envelope. There's wisdom and prudence, right? And not giving everything and putting yourself into debt. But there is wisdom and prudence and there is disobedience, Right? 
Are we willing to submit ourselves to our Lord who prompts us to give? Being willing to meet the needs of someone else. I'm not saying we give to every person we meet. That can be overwhelming, certainly. Unsustainable, for sure. And honestly, can be done for the wrong motives. Out of a selfish heart, even. But I'm saying, are you willing to meet a need or give generously more than originally thought or wanted or were comfortable to help someone else or further the work that God is doing if prompted? No guilt trips, no calls to take up an offering, but in a matter of obedience or generosity. And the question that comes is, this is just loving and kind to help. I hear a need. I want to meet it. I can help. I could say something, write something, do something, give something. But where is our heart in regards to it? Where is our heart in regards to the promptings that God gives to us in regards to money? Imagine if the Philippian church didn't send anything. Imagine Epaphroditus doesn't come. Would Paul's needs be met? Well, our God promises that he will be faithful to meet our needs. God promises to provide for these things. Don't be anxious for them, right? The last couple sections in Philippians talks about anxiety. And Paul, no doubt, as he'll say here in a couple verses, can trust in the Lord to provide. He's had a lot and he's had a little. He's gone hungry and he's been stuffed. He knows that God's going to provide. He's not worried about it. He's not growing anxious over it. But they supplied and he's thankful. It's meaningful for him. We want to have meaningful relationships one with another. We want to grow as a church together. We want to be used by God to care for one another, love one another well. Love those who are not yet Christians. Care for them well. It might be that the gift that you give to someone who's not yet a Christian is what God designs and intends to bring them to a place where maybe they're willing to hear the gospel because you continue to love them. They continue to see love, whereas their response or their observations or experiences before were only everything but love. Maybe I'll give this Christianity a chance. Maybe I was wrong before. Does our heart allow us to be generous? I can struggle with, I do struggle with this. And I can justify it. I can justify it by saying, I have needs too. I work hard for my money. And I owe it to myself to save it wisely and enjoy my retirement. And look, as I'm saying that, my fingers are cringing over. See that? Oh, really? Who is to say that Jesus will not return before retirement? Who is the one who gave me my job? Who is the one who gave you your house, your stuff, your life, your breath, everything that you have? It is the Lord. And the same God who gave us everything, who, has, who is the same God calling you to be generous. Don't you think that he knows exactly what would be of meaningful help to someone else? Don't you think he knows what words would be helpful? It's not just money, right? It's all of these other things and ways in which we can minister to someone. Don't you think he knows as he's prompting you to love someone, to show kindness to them, to give a gift to them, how that will be meaningful for the person receiving it? Exactly what they need is exactly what you have. Exactly what you're prompted to give is exactly what they need. I went to a Bible college, and I might have mentioned this to you before, but it was back in the day, and the school was really proud of the fact that they didn't take any loans, which is really great. The school lived by faith, but it's also really hard. 
because they required the students to live by faith. So students couldn't take out any loans, which is nice on the back end. You graduate debt-free, but it's really difficult in the middle. They would regularly send kids home in the middle of a semester if they couldn't make that middle payment. You know how many times we would pray for one another that God would supply a need and how many times to the penny money would just be stuck in somebody's mailbox. And we would have this thing on Mondays in chapel called Acts of God Testimony, where we would come back and we'd talk about how God worked throughout the weekend, what we saw him do. And over and over again, as we reached certain times, it's like, okay, payment number two is due. God pouring out. Someone didn't know how much they needed sent a certain grandma sends a check. She emptied out her cookie jar and sends it to Junior, and it's exactly what he needs to remain in school. It was unbelievable. Talk about growing our faith. The same God who might call you to give is the same God who knows and has given you everything that you have. He knows exactly what he's doing. He knows exactly how much you need to live through retirement. He knows exactly what you need uh, when you can retire or if you retire based on his return. He knows exactly all of these things, what the other person needs. We can trust Jesus when he prompts us to give and to care for other people. He can be trusted much more than our financial advisor or our own hunches. The issue is not giving or your money at all. God can meet people's needs another way, but the issue is God wanting to grow your faith, work on your heart to cling more to him than to money or things. This is going to move us to the next few verses where Paul's talking about contentment. But just the idea of him saying thank you to the church for their gift. Do you trust the Lord with what you have? Would you have given to the Apostle Paul? Now, some of you go, well, uh, in hindsight, of course. Look at all he's doing. He writes 13 letters in the New Testament. Of course, I want to be uh, recognized For 2,000 years of church history, the church of Philippi has been recognized. This gift that they sent by Epaphroditus, I would love it if like one day we find out it was really small. And he's like, this gift was amazing and it met my need. And you're like, well, the church in Philippi is like, really? We just kind of like got something together and sent it. Epaphroditus was dying to go see you and we just kind of said, here, take this. Maybe it'll help. But this church in Philippi, now for 2,000 years, people have been reading of a gift that they gave. And it's been an encouragement to other churches. It's been encouragement to missionaries who are receiving gifts by people as they give, as the Lord leads them. Paul, a missionary, of course we would want to help him out, right? But he's in prison. He's not actively serving. He's not actively on the field with thousands of baptisms in his missionary letter. God moves you to give. Do we give? God moves us to say something. Do we say something? Is our heart eager to give? Are we eager to follow the promptings of the Lord? Or do we regularly find ourselves talking our heart out of it? Out of ministering to one another. 2 Corinthians chapter 9, the point is this, he says. Paul writing to a different church who is giving incredibly generously to the church in Jerusalem. Whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, 
so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. You know, the giving correlates to your heart, which correlates to your behavior. And notice how many times in a passage that talks about giving, that God talks about all that I'm going to give to you. I'm going to give you all grace, all sufficiency in all things, at all times. We have no need to be anxious or to worry. The God who might prompt the church to give is the God who gives them everything they already have. Where are the fingers? Are they wrapped around our money or are they wrapped around trusting in the Lord who provides all things? Paul is genuinely thankful for the church who gave. And so am I. I'm thankful for the church who gave to Paul to encourage him in his ministry. Maybe something small, but seeing how and knowing how, as a human being, knowing how words of affirmation, something kind that is done, we all feel that. We all know what that is like when somebody notices a need and they quietly meet it. The encouragement that that brings genuinely to us. Secondly, God helped Paul The church encouraged Paul by their giving, but God helped Paul learn contentment by sending him both hard and easy circumstances. God helped Paul learn contentment by sending him both hard and easy circumstances. Paul has experienced times of blessing where he has lots, where he has, as he says, plenty, and Paul has gone hungry before. 2 Corinthians chapter 11 the section where he relays all the times that he's been beaten with rods. Uh, he's been stoned. He's been lashed. Uh, three times he was shipwrecked. A night and a day I was adrift at sea. Frequent journeys and dangers from river, rivers, robbers, my own people, the Gentiles, in the city, in the wilderness, you name it. I've been in danger. I've been experiencing all these things. And he says, Verse 27, in toil and hardship, through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. All of my least favorite things, he's experiencing regularly. And it's not as though God doesn't know what, God, what he is doing in the life of Paul, but God is continuing to use Paul to grow Paul. That's not just about Paul and himself and the difficulties. God's certainly with him in all of those things. But God is continuing to grow him. And God is continuing to grow those around him. And there no doubt the way that Paul responds to the difficulties he's facing is ministering in ways he might not know to those who are around him. But Paul speaks here of those circumstances and others and says, in the midst of all of these things, I'm not writing to you, church, to let you know that I still have a need. I'm not doing this sort of a, uh, a missionary letter that says, hey, thanks for the gift, but by the way, we've got another need that's coming up quick. I'm not asking for more money. And no offense to those who do as missionaries. They are completely reliant on those who are giving to them. And so give as we can give. But here Paul writes, not that I'm speaking of being in need, I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I have learned this. It's not something that naturally I'm going to do. It's, it's not something that naturally we are, are welcoming the opportunity to have hunger and experience cold and exposure and, and then to sometimes have plenty and warmth and goodness. 
He says, I learned these things. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. In all of these circumstances in which God has placed me, I have allowed myself to learn through them. I didn't just take them and let them move me wherever they were going to take me. But I learned. I learned that it's in both But in both circumstances, I can learn to trust in God, not in the circumstances that I'm facing. The secret is twofold. As D.A. Carson will write, it's not normally learned in just posh circumstances or in deprived circumstances, but in exposure to both. How would you handle living differently than you have always known? To all of a sudden have plenty, abundance, how would you live in a situation like that? No, no doubt, some of us are going, oh, I would be really wise with my money. And no doubt, if I was given millions of dollars, I used to, as a kid, I used to have this dream. If I had one wish for a genie, it would be, you guys are getting the insides of my soul here. Uh, it would be every time I put my hand in my pockets, I'd have $1,000 cash. Isn't that silly? It'd be, be kind of cool. So I would think about this, you know, and just like, just do this all day long. Just like sticking, like, what are you going to do if all of a sudden that was true? And you have all of this cash. I would be really wise. I'd invest it. I would give. Man, I'd be so generous to the kingdom of God. And would you know? Would you? Well, you don't know, Stephen, because you're not in that situation. It doesn't actually work. I've tried. Every pair of pants I get, none of them work like that. (laughs) What would it be like to have nothing? And to be hungry, to face the elements, to not have warmth, wood stove, all the amenities. What would that be like? I could make it. I could tough it out. Most of us don't know. On either spectrum, maybe. We might not know what it's like to live the other way. And for some, they say, "I, I was raised in one situation and I now live in the exact opposite. And have began to see what it would be like to be in both. But Paul is saying it's not just living in one type of a circumstance. and saying, I've only ever known abundance. I don't know what it's like to have nothing. And so if it ever happened, boy, I'm really scared of what I would do. You know, I've lived in both. And I've come to this place where I realize that the brute fact is that Paul is content in both circumstances because his contentment is utterly independent of his circumstances. It doesn't matter what circumstance he's in. His dependency is on God and not the circumstances. His dependency is on a person, an immovable person who does not change. The one who says to him, don't be anxious for anything. Don't be anxious. The Lord is with you. The God of peace will be with you. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind. Don't be anxious. Trust in me. I'm right here. Think on things that are true. Practice these things that you've been told. The secret is twofold. It's learning how to live in exposure to both, and it's not stoic self-sufficiency. Paul is not claiming to be so strong that nothing can move him, as though he has no emotion. He's not a real human being. He immediately confesses that if he has reached this stage of contentment, It's because he owes everything to the one who has strengthened him through it. 
Proverbs chapter 30, excuse me, Proverbs 30. Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful for me. This is much more than our circumstances. But what is it that is lying in our heart? We come to a text like this and that verse 13 stares us in the face. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Sometimes I know coming into a Sunday where we're, where we're looking at like probably one of your favorite passages or maybe many of you are like, this is my life verse. I have it tattooed on my forearm. It can be a little overwhelming and sometimes a little bit of a letdown. Because when we look at the text like this, we know what the context is. We know how to go to context that surrounds this verse. We know that this verse does not mean you can literally do anything that you want through him who strengthens you. We know that. We know that we cannot jump out of an airplane with no parachute and land safely on the ground. You cannot do that. We know that you cannot eat junk food for every meal for months on end and be unaffected. We know that we can't do that kind of thing. But we look at a passage like this and we're like, but I want to believe that this is true. I can do all things. Like the parent who says, you can be anything that you want to be. You might not be able to be. We want to give kids their their dreams, but we also want to let them know the priority is not in what they're going to be, but who they are. And who are you, Paul? Who are you, Christian? But we are ones who trust in God. We are ones who know that the God of the universe is with us. He is always with us, no matter what situations we face. It's not about the circumstances that come our way, but we as God's people can be rooted deeply in our identity and who God is for us. God is all-sufficient. God is the one who gives us everything that we have. God is the one who ordains the path that we walk and the situations we face. So God is the one to be trusted in the midst of each and every one of them. God is the one we run to. God is the one that we hold to. Not to our stuff, not to a situation, not to things or others, but God. D.A. Carson again, let the gospel advance. Let God's will be done in me and through me, Paul is saying. I'm content. For I can trust the one who invariably strengthens me to do what he assigns me. It takes strength and resolution, perspective that only God can provide to live above difficult, changing circumstances. But to live above circumstances, utterly content in Christ, is to ensure that you will never give up the Christian walk, that you will persevere unto the end. James chapter 1, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect. Work its way completely, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Contentment is not easy, but God is all sufficient. God is all we need, and God himself promises to meet our needs. In that, we can persevere. It is not easy. The Westminster divine Jeremiah Burroughs titles his book on contentment, The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment. 
Contentment is not about how much you have or into what situation you were born, but how does your heart respond to where God has you? And what has God given you to steward? And how are you obeying Him in response to what you have? The scriptures give us story after story of people who've been given all of these things or who had little and what they did with it. Solomon had incredible wealth from a human perspective, and it was not at all good for him. Had he ever experienced poverty? He bought everything he wanted and everything he could imagine and needed nothing from anyone, including God. Job was the richest man of his day until he lost it all. Talk about changing circumstances. And yet Job, we see from Job chapter 2, when he does lose it all, his heart is constant with the Lord, and he worships. We have the rich young ruler who comes to Jesus, has everything, and is unwilling to loosen his grip on it and follow Jesus. In scriptures, we see Christ himself. One who has all wealth and position in heaven. That has been his from eternity past. But then comes in the flesh to give his life as a ransom for many. On earth it is said of him that the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. No house, no income, no stuff. Psalm 131. O Lord, my heart is not lifted up. My eyes are not raised too high. I do not occupy myself with things too great and too marvelous for me, but I have calmed and quieted my soul like a weaned child with its mother. Like a weaned child is my soul within me. O Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. An unweaned child is not content. If we were to say, what is the picture? of a lack of contentment. We would look at a nursing child. (laughs) He cries, screams every time they want anything from their mother. But a weaned child with its mother has learned contentment, quieted my soul within me. Oh, Israel, hope in the Lord from this time forth and forevermore. Charles Spurgeon said that this is one of the shortest psalms to read, but one of the longest to learn. Contentment is a learned thing, something that takes a lifetime, something that is hard. The circumstances are given by God to teach us, to grow us, to pry our hands off of stuff or temporal things and onto Him. And do we trust our circumstances or do we trust God? Brother and sister, I pray that this uh, message of being able to look at contentment moves us being able to see what I can do That's exactly what Philippians 4.13, in most perspective, I can do all things through him who strengthens me. And it takes the focus and points it on the person. Instead of being able to look at the person in the midst of any and every circumstance, and their eyes, Lord willing, be lifted to God. But my trust is in him, no matter what may come. Christian, that'll allow us to weather the storm. And brother and sister, as we walk alongside one another, meeting one another where we are, caring for one another with a kind word, with a question, with, with a sensitivity to care well for each other. Then we begin to help one another, keep our eyes lifted and looking to Jesus in the midst of each and every circumstance we face. 
And that's when we do that, walking side by side, caring for one another well, recognizing that there are times where I need you to carry me and there are times where I can carry you, times I can be of great encouragement to you by something I do or say and vice versa. We need each other. A book we're going through in Sunday School by Ed Welch makes it clear we are all the needy and the needed. And in so doing, help one another to persevere unto the end. Let me finish with one line from Hebrews chapter 13. Keep your life free from the love of money. Be content with what you have. For he has said, and notice the connection, free from the love of money, content with what you have, for he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. May the presence of the Lord be our joy. May the presence of the Lord be what sustains us in and through every circumstance we face. Would you join me as we pray? Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your word. What a necessary and needed reminder for us as your people to saturate ourselves in the scripture to remind us that we are not self-sufficient, that we are not ones who can do whatever it is that we want, and that we have the ability on our own or by you empowering us to go out and tackle the world, to take on each and every circumstance, but that we are desperately needy for your grace. We are a people who have been needy for you from the beginning and will be until the end. For all of eternity, we will sing of your grace, not of our power, not of our ability. We look and we are resting in all that you have done for us in the gospel. Father, we do pray if there's someone here this morning who doesn't know the gospel, that doesn't know that this very Son of God who lived in heaven and eternally was reigning came and gave his life for them, for their sins, that they would come to know you as their Savior today. You would open their eyes to the beauty of the gospel. They would repent of their sins. And they would trust in Christ alone, and desiring to lift their eyes uh, to you now and forever until we walk on the golden shore, hand in hand with our Savior. We ask your blessing on the remainder of our singing and our time together, that you would be glorified and your saints, your people would be encouraged. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.